Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, it's worth our while to think about why practically everyone you know is talking about Ukraine and Russia's unlawful incursion. And it's equally worthwhile to ask why those same principles of concern don't seem to apply in other cases. Those feelings, after all, don't have to fight one another. But to hear Yemen put forward as a meme, as just an example of an under-considered concern, is galling from the same people who under-prioritized it in the first place. Yemen is not a rhetorical device. It's a country of human beings in crisis in which the United States is deeply involved. We'll talk about that with Yemeni activist and advocate Shireen Aladimi. She's also assistant professor of education at Michigan State University. Also on the show, Sarah Bloom Raskin was up for a job at the Federal Reserve. Everyone was for her nomination, including the bankers that she would oversee. So why did she withdraw her nomination? And what does that tell us about the possibility of making any advances at all in addressing the reality of climate change? helping us see why issues that media often divide are completely related, is David Arkish, Managing Director of the Climate Program at the group Public Citizen. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. It's encouraging to see widespread recognition of the double standards of concern from media and politicians that we see reflected in the earnest attention to Ukraine as compared to that devoted to other areas of crisis, like Yemen. Seven years now under a Saudi-led war and blockade, enabled by weapons and technical assistance from the United States and others, that's leaving hundreds of thousands of people in hunger and need. While we're using that critical lens, we can also see that it's only media framing and its social media echoes that insist that you quantify your compassion in the first place. And they're mainly interested in how your concern shows up as consuming more media. So while acknowledgement of official double standards and hypocrisy is welcome, the point is lost if you come away seeing Yemen as a rhetorical device rather than a country of 30 million people enduring a protracted cataclysm in which this country, the United States, is playing a central role. Here to talk about Yemen in its own right is Shireen Aladimi. She's assistant professor of education at Michigan State University and has been working for years to raise awareness on Yemen and human rights. She joins us now by phone from Lansing. Welcome back to Counterspin, Shireen Aladimi. Thanks so much for having me back to me. Well, we've seen the cold facts. Yemen war deaths, we're told, will reach 377,000 by the end of the year, the U.N. says. The U.N.'s described it for years as the world's worst humanitarian disaster. It's difficult to convey or to, to get your mind around a place where a child is dying of 
starvation every 75 seconds, you know. So first we just sit with that. But I wanted to actually start with where we've left off in our previous conversations, which is that when people see the suffering in Yemen, the message is not, please come and intervene and save us. That's not what people are asking for. Yeah. Actually, the the numbers that you mentioned, those were 377,000 deaths at the end of last year, 2021. And so these deaths have just been mounting ever since. And even that number, I'm afraid, is a large underestimate of really the humanitarian toll and the loss that Yemenis have experienced and have continued to experience over the last seven years. Um, But absolutely, the, the, the ask here is not oh, look at us, come save us from this big bad person, the Saudi Arabians and the UAE. The ask here is to stop U.S. intervention, to stop piling on to the invasion, the bombing, the starvation, this incredibly devastating war and onslaught that Yemenis have undergone over the past seven years. And it's just mind-boggling to me that that simple ask, really, to just pay attention to what our own government is doing in Yemen and to call for an end to that is somehow less worthy of attention than called to, in fact, you know, save us and and give us money. And, you know, right. I think it's great that people are paying attention to the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. We should never support invasions or, you know, attacks on sovereignty. And yet it seems that the attention to that conflict, even though it's much more demanding, I guess, seems to be more easily given than the conflict in Yemen, where Yemenis are asking the U.S. to stop intervening in this conflict and making things worse. Well, Biden came into office saying that the war on Yemen has to end. You know, uh, you had some questions about that early on, and I wonder how those have borne out. What sense do you make of the White House's actions, not words, but actions on Yemen? This is the problem with the Biden administration is, you know, when we had Trump in power, his actions were very much aligned with his words. And so he was saying that he wanted to continue bombing Yemen because it was great money for the U.S. because the Saudis paid in cash. Right. There was a big business deal for the U.S. to continue to support the Saudi Arabian military and the UAE military in Yemen. But with Biden, even though this war began under the Biden-Obama administration, there was a lot of talk on his campaign trail to end the war. Like he said, he said, this war must end. I will stop selling weapons. I will make them a pariah that they are. They're going and killing innocent women and children. And these are quotes from his presidential debate in 2019. And then his first foreign policy speech in February of 2021 was that he was going to put an end to this war. And he introduced this dichotomy that didn't exist before, which is, that he's going to end offensive operations and that he was going to review relevant arms sales. And that's what Jared Lazar and I in in these times picked up on on the same day that he made the announcement on February 4th, 2021, questioning what this means and whether he's just introduced these loopholes to continue, in fact, supporting the Saudi-led coalition, but instead calling it defensive instead of offensive. And I'm sad to say that this is exactly what has panned out the actions of the Biden administration are really no different than the actions of the Trump administration or the Obama administration. They continue to support the Saudi-led coalition. They continue to support with 
weapons and logistics and intelligence, but they're just calling it defensive now, even though it makes absolutely no sense. And there have been no clarifications provided to Congress when they've asked, but it gives them this plausible deniability, I suppose, to say, well, we're not actually involved in Yemen anymore. We're just helping for defensive purposes. Right. Well, it's interesting even to rhetorically gesture to say, I'm going to move to end the war in Yemen, suggests U.S. centrality, suggests a U.S. role there, which in terms of news media is not always acknowledged. It's always a Saudi-led a Saudi-led war, a Saudi-perpetrated war, and it's not that the U.S. role is denied completely, but the fact that a president can say, I'm going to move to end this war, shows that he could do something to end the war. I'm not sure that media really always place the U.S. in that way. We're seen as, like, not bystanders, but helping in some way or the other, but not as central as, in fact, we are. You wouldn't think that the U.S. had the power actually, to end the war. Absolutely. I mean, that statement is an admission of how involved the U.S. is in this war. I I just have to lay it out to the audience in case they're not aware. The Saudi and the UAE military, they are completely incompetent and entirely dependent on U.S. support. And what I mean by that is they rely on U.S. contracts with their militaries and air forces to train their pilots, train their soldiers, to provide logistical support. You know, up until 2018, which was during the Trump administration, late 2018, the U.S. was providing mid-air refueling to Saudi and Emirati jets. We supply them with all of their weaponry because they don't manufacture anything and they import everything that they have from mostly the U.S., about 70% from the U.S., but then also countries like the U.K., Canada, and, and other Western countries, not from Russia and China because those weapon systems are different. They rely on, you know, Western governments to supply them with arms. Um, Then there's intelligence sharing and there's uh, support in the command room, choosing targets for them. So every step of the way, the pilot who is flying a U.S. made plane has been trained by U.S. personnel. His plane, after he drops U.S. bombs, ends up getting serviced, continues to get serviced by U.S. personnel. Spare parts are provided by the U.S. Those targets were chosen with the support of the U.S. So every step of the way, the U.S. is helping and facilitating and enabling this coalition to continue bombing Yemen. And then, of course, we're not even talking about things like diplomatic cover at the U.N. and support for the blockade and things like that. And so without the U.S., this war really can't go on and at least can go on in the way it has been for the last several years. Not to this extent, it couldn't cause as much damage to the Yemeni people without U.S. support. And then, you know, diplomatically, Biden can pick up the phone and, you know, I've spoken to Congress people who understand this. You know, Biden can call up the Saudi crown prince and just say, listen, you need to end this war and the war will end, you know, because the U.S. has such leverage with, with the Saudis and with the Emiratis. But the fact of the matter is, is that the, the U.S. is really a party to the war and they don't want to end this war because they are a party to the war. They're engaged in hostilities. And yet they've enjoyed this PR campaign, essentially, um, of it being called the Saudi-led coalition and not the U.S.-led war in Yemen. Well, let me just ask you, finally, your work is about how people learn. And that brings us, I think, to news media in a way. And I think there's an issue with just topic segregation. In other words, you can pick up a paper and see an empathetic 
story about Yemeni children, for example, about suffering. And then on a different page in the paper, you can find a story about MBS, you know, and how he's a down-to-earth guy who loves dogs about the Saudi leader. So there's a separation in news media from things that might tug at heartstrings, might make you feel empathy, and then things that seem actionable, things that seem like something you can do. So I would just ask you finally, I know that the attention that the war on Ukraine is giving to Yemen is kind of backhanded attention, but that doesn't mean we can't use a spotlight when we have it. And so what can people be for right now? What are places to push for for listeners to do uh, at, at this moment who are concerned about our, the U.S. actions in Yemen? And, you know, I don't blame the average person for feeling a certain way about Ukraine and not having that same empathy for Yemen, because like you said, the media really manipulates the way we uh, understand issues and it decontextualizes so much of this stuff. And so somebody might be looking at this and not understanding that, you know, we are Putin in this case. Right. We are the Saudis are like Putin. We are the aggressor. The U.S. is the aggressor in this case. We are the people who are causing the starvation because it's so decontextualized. But we can talk and chew gum at the same time. Like we can right. pay attention to what's going on in Ukraine and also not stall on our action toward Yemen, especially because in this case, you know, it's not about different people fighting a, a war that we're not involved in. We are central to this war, like we've discussed. And so right now there's a movement in Congress. It's been really difficult to get Democrats energized in the same way that they were energized during the Trump administration, because I think they were giving President Biden the benefit of the doubt. But they understand now that the U.S. is just as involved as they were before. And there is a push by Representatives Jayapal and DeFazio to introduce another war powers resolution. It wouldn't end weapon sales, but it would force Biden to end U.S. support for the war Mm -hmm. in Yemen. And I'm disappointed that it's not getting as much attention because, again, it seems like Ukraine has taken up a lot more attention than, you know, again, they can pay attention to these things equally, given our role, especially. But I would love for listeners to call their representatives and to urge them to support the Yemen War Powers Resolution, to come on as co-sponsors when the bill is introduced, to really make these public statements of support for an end to the U.S.'s war in Yemen. Understand that this is our responsibility as citizens of the U.S. to continue to push our elected officials to demand, really, from them to to take a stance on this um, humanitarian crisis that continues to be a stain on U.S. history. We've been speaking with Shireen Aladimi, Assistant Professor of Education at Michigan State University. You can find her writing on Yemen and other issues, among other places, at InTheseTimes.org. Shireen Aladimi, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me, Janine. The disjuncture between what really day-to-day matters in the lives of people around the country, food, shelter, work you can live on, and what elected officials do is the stuff of political science. We all know that the connection isn't direct. People want health care, for instance. When they have to choose between their medicine and keeping the lights on, nobody's saying, yay, this is a choice I made that redounds overall to my benefit. 
But when it comes to media coverage, people and their needs and their problems often get subsumed into an abstract story about economic interests and industry and government and blah, blah, blah. Journalism could provide a different connection between human needs and policy decisions that might spur action rather than frustration. And it seems as though a failure to connect those dots is part of why a candidate for a position at the Federal Reserve, Sarah Bloom Raskin, had her nomination derailed because her record indicated that she recognized that climate disruption is real and will have economic impacts. So what happened here is the sausages being made, and there's a reason that the joke is that you don't want to see it. But we have to see it if we want to be the democracy of, by, and for the people we claim we want to be. David Arkish is the Managing Director of Public Citizens Climate Program and a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, David Arkish. Thanks, Janine. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's start at the center here. Sarah Bloom Raskin was up for Federal Reserve Vice Chair for Supervision. Mm -hmm. She was confirmed by the White House, obviously, but by others as well. So what happened? That's a great question. And, you know, your your introduction had me thinking, you know, there's one thing worse than seeing how the sausage gets made, and that is seeing it fail to be made <laughs> <laughs> up close. This is a job, I'll start with a, maybe a little background on what this role is. So the, the position of vice chair for supervision at the Federal Reserve was created after the financial crisis of 2008, when Congress passed that big bill, the, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act. One of the pieces in it was creating this position at the Fed so that there would be a high-up official at the Fed monitoring the safety of banks and monitoring the stability of the financial system and looking out, looking at the horizon for emerging risks and, and figuring out what to do about it. Now, Sarah Bloom Raskin, it is hard to think of a person who is better suited to that job. She's the most qualified person in the country that I know of by far. She is a former state bank regulator. She was the supervisor of banks in Maryland and the top financial regulator in Maryland. She has already been on the board of, of the Federal Reserve, which this, this vice chair for supervision is one of the governors on the board. Right. She's already been one. And she was the number two person at the Treasury. So she has high-level experience. At Treasury, she led work on cybersecurity risks to finance. So she's actually also the nation's leading expert on cybersecurity threats to financial institutions and to financial stability, something that would squarely be within her jurisdiction at the Federal Reserve, and something that is a really heightened concern right now, given the war between Russia and Ukraine. We are actually facing heightened cyber threats on critical infrastructure in this country, including banks and the finance system. So it, it's really hard to imagine somebody who's more qualified. Now, one of the things that somebody who is that qualified and that expert thinks about in the context of making sure that we have a sound economy and a sound financial system right now is climate. It is impossible to ignore that climate harms are imposing really severe costs on a lot of sectors, on a lot of whole states, on a lot of geographies. There are insurers who are pulling out of insuring homes in large regions of California. 
these things have major economic impacts, and it's also hard to ignore that there are a lot of climate-related risks to financial institutions and to financial stability. And that is basically a consensus view among most financial regulators these days. And Sarah Bloom-Raskin also agrees with that view and was very clear that she intended not to ignore things that were related to climate, as there is often pressure to do in the United States because of our bizarre politics and the power of the fossil fuel industry, but that she would look at those risks the same way she would look at any others and and take them on if, if need be in regard to how they affect banks and how they affect finance. Which was businesses and banks should want, right? I mean, they're reality-based organizations, um, as we understand them to be. So what what was it about what she said, um, matter-of-factly, about climate disruption and its impact that was the problem? <laughs> this is what's surprising and unusual about this situation. Sibley Maskin, in addition to all the other things I have said, has already been confirmed twice by the U.S. Senate. She wouldn't have been on the Fed board and she wouldn't have been the number two at Treasury if she hadn't been. Twice confirmed unanimously. And this time around, she also had broad bipartisan support. She's supported by consumer groups, by civil rights groups, by unions, by many businesses, and by banks, by big banks and small banks. Everyone, you know, it's a really uncommon thing to find somebody who, who virtually everybody agrees is actually extremely expert, competent, and reasonable. There was one major group that does not agree, and that is the oil and gas industry. And not even the whole oil and gas industry. It's interesting. The, having seen the fight up close, the large oil companies didn't bother. It, it was small oil and gas companies who were opposed. And it's not hard to figure out why. If you pay attention to these issues, a lot of the smaller oil and gas companies are in pretty shaky financial condition. Some of them have never been profitable, you know, over the 10 or 15-year history of the company. And oil and gas markets are really volatile. Everybody knows this. Prices go up, prices go down. And it's really hard for them to get loans, in part because a combination of how basically the companies are just really risky and all the financial institutions know it, and they have trouble getting bank loans. And so oil and gas has for a long time pressured financial regulators, pressured bank regulators to adopt essentially biased rules that either give them directly sort of special bailouts or favors or pressure banks to lend to companies that the banks think are too risky. And one thing that was clear about Sarah Bloom-Raskin is she was not going to do that. She was going to take Mm -hmm. a measured, serious, expert approach. And she's well within the mainstream of what any honest and competent regulator should and would do, and, and frankly most do, particularly under one side of the aisle here. But, you know, she had said some things about recognizing the threats from climate risks to finance and to banks, and her opponents just seized on that. And I think we all know what often happens in U.S. politics. If you start painting somebody as a climate radical, she very quickly lost in the U.S. Senate the support of basically every Republican and Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Ultimately, that was the end of her nomination, basically on the basis of her Having viewpoints that are completely mainstream and reasonable, the chair of the Fed, who is a Republican, uh, Chair Powell, agrees with and is about to sail through his confirmation. But in her case, they were used you know, basically to smear her and treat her like she was a, some kind of radical. 
Well, let me just ask you finally for your thoughts about media coverage, because when I looked at the coverage, I saw a reference to Bloom Raskin as embattled. And, you know, when you hear that word or that kind of language, it makes it sound as though, you know, the jury was out. It was kind of 50-50 and she was on the losing side. What you're telling me is there was a whole lot of support and understanding and then there was a faction that was able kind of to whipsaw the rest. So if people are reading journalism, media coverage about this and they want to really understand what happened, maybe embattled isn't going to really tell them the story in the way that they should understand it. So I would just ask you finally, what would you like to see journalists doing more of or less of in terms of not just this nomination, but in terms of the relationship between climate disruption and financial regulation? Well, that's interesting. It is a big topic. I think that people do need to hear more about it and understand more about it. It couldn't be more obvious. Again, it's very quickly becoming totally uniform among financial regulators to be taking it seriously, and lots of them are acting on the issue. And frankly, a lot of the private sector is, right? A lot of the big banks are, a lot of the big asset managers are. I think the coverage has been improving. Frankly, it's a new area. Mm -hmm. A lot of people haven't heard about, you know, the idea that there's a connection between climate change and finance, although the moment you start talking to to people about it, it's obvious obvious that it's right, and there is, and that we ought to be thinking about it. And so, you know, it's catching on very quickly. But I think, yeah, increased awareness of that, increased increased awareness of the seriousness of the risks and what needs to be done. And that's sort of on the issue in general. And then I think in terms of, like, this, this type of political fight, I started thinking toward the end of it that the U.S. Senate is such a strange institution. <laughs> and it's so undemocratic right. in a society that has such a long and proud tradition of democracy in so many ways. That is not one of them. And almost everything that happens there needs to be painstakingly contextualized as happening in this sort of bizarre alternate reality, yeah. right? There's the real world in which someone like Sarah Maskin is supported by basically everybody, including the banks that she's going to regulate and including consumer advocates and civil rights groups and, you know, and unions, and then there's this bizarre world of the U.S. Senate, where the representation does not match the population of the United States. What they do does not match public opinion in the United States, and they operate under bizarre rules. And yeah, what happens there is it's like a parallel universe. And I think sometimes things that happen there get treated as if they're real world things, or that they reflect real opinions, or that they reflect they reflect where the American people are. Right. And I think that that does some real harm because it's it's actually important for us to understand how that institution actually works, and frankly, in my view, how broken it is, uh, and how much we need to be taking on that issue as well. We've been speaking with David Arkish. He's Managing Director of Public Citizens Climate Program. They're online at citizen.org. David Arkish, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Jean. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. You can find us online at fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.